This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumela Lezondi, coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. And remember that we are on Channel 15235 kHz to West Africa. And we are also on Channel 902 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. This hour, I'm with Onel Lenzinzi, Husani Matebula, and Musibudi Makura. Let's take a look at your top stories. Leading Burundian human rights defender shot and injured in Bujumbura. A new South African liquor policy could make retailers liable for accidents and crimes committed by drunk customers. In economics, Kenya Airways reports a record loss in its year ending March. And in sports, Andy Murray back on hard courts at the City Open. Let's get the news from Onel Nzinti first. Thank you, Spoo, and greetings to our listeners. And looking at your news update, at least seven people have been killed and about 20 others kidnapped by suspected Boko Haram militants on a village near Cameroon's northern border. The officers deployed as part of a Cameroonian military operation aimed at stemming the spillover of violence from Boko Haram's traditional stronghold in northeastern Nigeria, said that the death toll is provisional and could rise. Cameroon has already deployed some 7,000 troops as part of a regional force, which includes Chad, Niger and Nigeria, to try to stop Boko Haram's six-year insurgency. The NPA in South Africa says it will reinstate charges against opposition party EFF leader Julius Malema because he has not been acquitted. Malema's case was struck off the role in the High Court in Polokwane province. Justice George Mortley struck the case of the role, citing continued and unfair delays. However, Justice Mortley warned that the state could reinstate the charges. Malema and four others are facing corruption, fraud, money laundering and racketeering charges relating to government tender. NPA spokesperson Luvuyom Fakos says the matter is not over. We still maintain our position that we are ready to proceed with uh, with the trial. Uh, the delays in proceeding with the matter were not occasioned by the NPA. You heard today that accused number five was not in court. And we couldn't actually proceed with separation of charges. We wanted all the five accused in one court to answer to the charges. I can only assure the public that a strike-off is not a verdict. It's not an acquittal. Uh, it can be reinstated um, on the basis of approaching a, a relevant DPP with jurisdiction. To, to issue a certificate reinstating the matter. A leading Burundian human rights activist shot in the face by a gunman is in a stable condition in hospital. Pierre-Clave Mbonimpa, who publicly opposed President Pierre Gronziza's controversial and successful bid for a third term last month, was shot as he made his way home from work in the capital on Monday by a gunman on a motorbike. The shooting follows Sunday's killing in a rocket attack of General Adolf Nshimirimana, who was widely seen as the Central African nation's defunco internal security chief, Bernard Bankokira Hesmo. The attack occurred in the evening of this Monday in Bujumbura around 6 p.m. as he was driving home 
When he arrived at the area commonly known as Kukanga in the northern neighborhood of Kinama, an identified man riding on a motorcycle approached and shot at him and disappeared. The incident came up as rumors that Bonima had been shot or arrested circulated all day of Monday on social media. Mr. Bonima has been influential in the protest against President Pierre Nkurunziza's candidacy for a third term. He's one of the key figures of the Burundi civil society who mobilized Burundians for the protest. Hundreds of illegal migrants, most of them from Ethiopia, remain detained in Malawi in appalling conditions. According to Doctors Without Borders, the migrants were detained while on their way to South Africa in search of jobs. Reports show that the numbers have been on the increase in the past two years, possibly because other nations such as Mozambique are making it harder for undocumented migrants to travel through their countries. At least 193 Ethiopians, 14 Congolese and two Burundians were in Maula Central Prison in Lilongwe, whilst others were detained in other prisons across the southeast Africa. Country. And finally, the state in South Africa has closed its case in the Midomashia case in the High Court in the capital Pretoria. Eight former police officers are on trial for the death of the Mozambican taxi driver. The court earlier acquitted one of the accused, Walter Ramatlo, as there was no evidence implicating him to the death of the taxi driver. Marsha was found dead in the police holding cells at a police station in the east of Johannesburg in 2013. This happened hours after he was dragged behind a police van. Marsha's family representative, Jose Naskimento, is confident that Ramatlo's acquittal won't affect the outcome of the case. There was no evidence whatsoever to proceed against number nine. That is why we didn't even bring an application. The judge on its own decided to ask the state if they have any objection. He was only implicated by Ngamlana, the cell commander. But then there were a lot of questions on the statements that he made. I think we had six statements. We had his testimony to the disciplinary inquiry. And it is from the disciplinary inquiry also it was clear that he is not implicating him. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilins Insi. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Onele. It's 1906 Central African time. Attacks on a journalist and a well-known human rights defender in Burundi prompted the UN Human Rights Office, OHCHR, to issue a call for restraint from all opposing groups. News agency journalist S. Adras Ndikumana was allegedly assaulted by state security forces on Monday, while rights activist Pierre Klava Mbonimba was targeted in a separate attack. The assaults come after the killing of General Adolf in Chimirimana in a rocket attack at the weekend. More from OHCHR spokesperson Cecile Opoli. There is a sense of fear in Burundi, especially in Bujumbura. You know, since the assassination of General Nchirimana, there has been a number of mass arrests and further escalation of violence. We've seen a human rights defender who's been attacked brutally. Can you give us a bit more detail on what happened in this attack? He was shot four times, wasn't he? Absolutely. Pierre Clavier Mboimba was attacked by two people on a motorbike. That was last night, and he was severely wounded, including in the neck. He's now at the hospital 
hospital, still seriously wounded. And we've also seen another attack on a journalist and the RFEFP correspondent who's been brutally arrested by SNR agents. SNR being the National Security Force? Yes, absolutely. So he was on the crime site where the general was assassinated when he was arrested by these agents and he was taken to their headquarters in Bunjubura. And there he was uh, tortured. He was told he's a journalist enemy and he's now been released at that hospital with a, a finger broken. He's just gone to surgery for that, but he's also endured psychological trauma. Obviously. Can you tell me about the detentions that we're aware of? Around 600 people have been arrested in recent months and they are still in detention. What are their conditions like? Why are they being detained? We have quite a good access to different places of detention and the situation, of course, varies from one place to the other. In some places, conditions are a bit difficult in terms of logistics, so people are not in good conditions of detention. In some other uh, cases, there have been reports of ill-treatment. And, of course, because we have this access and we do on a regular basis, we try to follow up on cases and raise our concerns with the authorities. Is there a sense that the situation is deteriorating? with rocket attacks at the weekend, for example? Well, clearly the assassination of the general has raised many fears. I mean, you can see the population is expecting further violence. That's why we're calling for restraint. But obviously, yes, it's been a very critical moment, this assassination, and we fear what's coming next, and that's why we're really asking all sides not to resort to violence. That was the UN Human Rights Office OHCR spokesperson, Cecile Poli. She was speaking to Daniel Johnson from UN Radio. Efforts to strengthen relations between South Africa and Vietnam are expected to receive a major boost. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa is today hosting Deputy Prime Minister of the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, Wang Trung, high in Cape Town. The Vietnamese Deputy Prime Minister is on an official visit to South Africa. He arrived over the weekend. Ntlantla Matlangu reports. During their meeting, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa and Deputy Prime Minister of the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, Huang Trung Hai, are expected to discuss bilateral and multilateral cooperation issues of mutual interest. They are also expected to further explore issues for trade and investment. More from South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa spokesperson, Roni Mamoyeba. The status of the cooperation in other important areas such as biodiversity conservation and protection will also be on the agenda for discussion. According to official South African press statistics, total trade between South Africa and Vietnam is growing year on year and amounted to 13.4 billion rand in 2014, which is up from 11.2 billion in 2013. Since the establishment of formal diplomatic relations in December 1993, a solid bilateral relationship has developed between South Africa and Vietnam, as reflected in the 13 bilateral legal instruments concluded between them. These instruments include cooperation in the areas of foreign relations, trade and investments, defense, tourism, as well as protection and combating crime, amongst others. One of these instruments also relates to the establishment in 2004 of the Intergovernmental Partnership Forum for Economic, Trade, Scientific, Technical and Cultural Cooperation aimed at facilitating bilateral cooperation in areas of mutual interest. The most recent meeting of the Partnerships Forum between the two countries took place in Hanoi in June this year at deputy ministerial level. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tlantla Matlangu in Johannesburg.
The time is 19.11 Central African time right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're still listening to Africa Digest with me is Pomelele Zondi. And we are on... 15235 kHz on the 19-meter band to West Africa this hour. We are also on channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. Thank you very much for staying with us. Now, despite the ongoing conflict in South Sudan, children there have issued a simple and clear message. We want to stay in school. That's according to a new report by Save the Children, which looks at the plight of the country's youngsters. At just four years old, South Sudan is the world's newest nation. But the country has been marred by nearly two years of fighting, stemming from a political battle. As a result, more than two million people have fled their homes. UN Radio's Sibit Williams spoke to Peter Walsh, Save the Children Country Director for South Sudan, to find out why children's voices matter. Essentially, it's very hard, or there's not many occasions where children's voices are actually heard, and it's actually our mandate to be the voice of the children. You can hear children's voices in the playground, but very rarely do you hear them, you know, at a national level. And let's be honest, children know what they want, mm-hmm. uh, and, and us adult, adults must listen to that. What are some of your findings, apart from the children wanting education, we want to learn, even during the war, what else do these children want? What are they saying in this particular uh, survey as you've been carrying out with the children? Clearly, there were other demands from the children, which included the importance of shelter, food, water and health care. And that can't be underestimated. Like I said, these ratings um, were actually lower than education in, their, in terms of their priorities. Tell us now what happens after this report. What, what is Save the Children going to do next in order to try to improve or help these children in their demands? Clearly, we have to respond. Um, children have spoken. And they have clearly stated that they want to learn despite war. Um, There are going to be a number of hurdles which we'll need to overcome. And firstly, the greatest hurdle is clearly the absence of peace. And I'm sure I'm speaking for the international community that we really hope over the next coming days that concrete solutions are agreed upon and that a lasting peace is made in Addis Ababa. Another hurdle is obviously humanitarian access. And all agencies, in order to respond to these needs that the children are calling for, must have complete, unimpeded humanitarian access. And then we can actually go in and rebuild the lives of children, help them reach their their goals, help them believe that they can actually attain their dreams. If we look at 2014, only 2% of humanitarian funding actually went to education emergency. Mm -hmm. And we would ask donors to consider this needs to increase. Otherwise, we will not meet the demands of the children. But also, going forward, I understand that we have the 2015-2016 budget allocations currently going in review with the government. And I really hope that there is a focus, you know, on the children's needs, being early childhood education, so nursery school, primary school, and also with one million youth who have never seen education. You know, I would hope that an accelerated learning program, an alternative education program, are really invested in for them to attain a future. Tell us about the statistics of these children as you carried this survey. How many children are not in school? Before the crisis, we know that there was one million children that were not in school. And since the crisis, we're estimating with our partners, UNICEF, um, that there are just over 400,000 children that have additionally dropped out of school. So that's about 1.4 million children. Now, these 1.4 million children, if they do not return to school, will be an additional statistic to the current 1 million youth. 
and we know you know what the youth are contributing to currently uh, within the crisis tell us 1.4 million children that's quite a big number obviously and you did mention clearly earlier the percentage of budget going towards education i mean like for the humanitarian assets going to 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 education is very very limited where do you see all this going what's your target at save the children save children are supporting the government on their back to learning campaign along with our partner unicef and the target there is for the 400,000 children in the conflict affected states to return to school and we fully back that Peter Walsh is with Save the Children. He is the country director for South Sudan and he was talking to you and radio's Sibit William. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And the time is 1917 right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa with Ms. Pumela Lezondi. Now a new South African liquor policy could make retailers liable for accidents and crimes committed by drunk customers. The country's Department of Trade and Industries proposed a national liquor policy will make manufacturers, distributors and retailers liable for harm and damage caused by customers over the liquor limit. Every township tavern owner serves a drink to drinks rather to an inebriated person who who then commits a crime or has an accident, he or she could face criminal charges. Non-governmental organization Free Market Foundation contends that the policy is unjust. For a perspective, uh, here is Leon Lowe, executive director at the Free Market Foundation. Well, it's one thing is making them responsible, making a law saying you may not serve liquor to somebody you know to be intoxicated. Quite how you know that's a separate and difficult question. The police can't even tell. What they can do is do a breathalyzer and make you walk on a straight line and balance and recite the alphabet backwards and so on. And if they suspect you to be intoxicated, you then have to have blood tests. In other words, the only way they can tell is by uh, getting medical intervention. Now they want a law that will require a little cafe owner in the middle of the, of the countryside or a hotel with a mini bar in a room, for example, uh, or a nightclub, uh, for example, a rave at a soccer stadium with 20,000 people. Uh, now, somehow the owner has to know and be able to tell which people are intoxicated, which police can't do one-on-one. And then if they do serve alcohol to someone who's intoxicated, who goes away and commits a crime or has an accident, now all of a sudden you want to hold someone else 
who didn't cause it liable, and whether that would be possible in constitutional law is very doubtful, making me liable for a crime you commit. All right, now, Leon, you're saying that even the police cannot tell whether someone is too drunk or not. So what if um, the government was to have an addition to this and say, well, maybe bar owners should have breathalyzers? Would you agree with it then? I would say that it's quite unrealistic if you think of... uh you know, for example, a nightclub, a casino, um, hotels, restaurants, the places where people, in fact, drink, of course, taverns and shabines. And now you are going to expect a waiter, a waitron, a, a, a service provider, to suddenly go up to the manager and say, look, I think that person over there with red hair at that table happens to be intoxicated. Now you've got to walk over in the middle of people having dinner or having a drink with their mates after a sports game or whatever it might be, and say, I want to do a breathalyzer test on you, uh, you are likely to get yourself punched on the nose. And uh, this is not going to be the real world, even if it is constitutional, which it probably isn't. So now let's say that it's implemented. Um, What sort of repercussions is it going to have on the liquor industry? Well, if it is implemented, and let me immediately say it probably would be one of those laws that is on the books that everybody ignores and therefore a waste of time and really just makes everyone disrespect the law. But if it really is implemented, the consequence will be absolutely devastating. People will get into permanent conflict with their customers as to whether or not they consider them intoxicated. Imagine you being told, you and I go out this evening we're sitting somewhere having a quiet drink in a tavern or a shabin or on a, on a veranda overlooking a view or whatever it might be. And uh, we order a drink and the waiter says, no, I'm sorry, I think you're intoxicated. Can you imagine how offended and angry you would be at being told that in the presence of your friends? And so uh, the effect would be a huge amount of conflict, a huge amount of anger and resentment. Uh, racism would be the race card would be played constantly if one race accuses another of it, for example. People sitting on an aeroplane ordering drinks from the cabin crew are now going to have these cabin crews saying to one person sitting next to others, sorry, I'm not giving you another one. I think you're intoxicated. Do this breathalyzer test. The ramifications are so insane that it's actually hard to believe who thought of it did so when they were sober. My guess is whoever thought of this was in fact intoxicated. All right. Now, this is just for bar owners. What about places that sell liquor that can be taken home for like supermarkets, for for example, um, where you can go and buy a bottle of wine and then take it home? Does this proposed law affect them? Yes, it applies to everybody, even, believe it or not, manufacturers. This is really very strange. I mean, somebody who isn't anywhere near the place all of a sudden is now going to somehow have to tell whether people who buy their liquor is intoxicated. But, it, yes, it would apply to you walking into a bottle store, putting stuff in the trolley, going up to pay for it, or in a, in a supermarket, uh, or at a wine estate down in the, in the um, uh, Western Cape or somewhere like that. And now all of a sudden the person serving you, if they believe that you look tipsy or intoxicated, which is really quite an insult, if you were to say to me, Leon Lowe, you sound intoxicated in this interview, I would be offended. Now are you expecting ordinary shopkeepers, shop assistants, managers, supervisors to start saying to customers 
I think you are drunk. This is an extraordinary thing to expect ordinary, decent human beings to do, and the if they do try to enforce it, it would cause absolute mayhem. The reality is it would actually never be enforced. And bearing in mind there is already a law regarding being an accomplice. In other words, if you now, for example, hand keys to somebody to drive away in a car and you have very good reason to believe they are intoxicated, uh, you can already, under existing law, be liable. But that would be an extreme case where, they, where they're falling all over the show, where they but this idea that you, you know, intoxication means you don't even look intoxicated. It means you have above a certain percentage of alcohol in your blood. And as you say, you would have to do this by way of a breathalyzer, not actually looking at somebody and, and seeing their behavior. And even if you did see their behavior, they may be just a, you know, that sort of person who comes across as jovial and jolly or something like that. Uh, this is a very, very peculiar thought. Ian Lowe is the executive director at non-governmental organization Free Market Foundation who was joining me on the line earlier this evening. It's 1924 Central African time. Development partners today gathered in Johannesburg, South Africa for the first regional task team meeting on HIV prevention in the East and Southern African region. The event was convened by the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, and partners. The aim was to agree on prevention priorities and treatment programs, amongst other things. Evidence shows that HIV incidences increase significantly among girls and young women aged 10 to 24 years of age. UNFPA's regional director, Dr. Julita Onabanjo, explains. The HIV situation amongst young people in East and Southern Africa is really one where we wish it was better. I think more and more we are seeing progress. We're seeing globally the reduction of HIV new infections. We're seeing more people on treatment. However, in East and Southern Africa, you know, while there is some progress, particularly for young people and particularly for young women, we continue to have challenges in terms of just being able to reduce the infection rates as quick as we would want. As it stands now, we have almost 4,300 new HIV infections amongst young women aged 15 to 24 per week in 14 countries in East and Southern Africa. And really those are large numbers. South Africa, for example, we have at least 2,000, 2,500 new cases per week amongst young people. And so I think, you know, much more to be done. And that's why we really are gathered here today to really brainstorm and and just think deeply as to what we can do to reinvigorate the efforts around HIV prevention in the region. And if you could just give us the key points, what came out of this meeting in terms of what more needs to be done, as you pointed out, that much still needs to be done? I think the first one is really around political commitment. I think we are seeing much more of our governments taking um, the issue of HIV on. HIV prevention, we need to still get up there on the political commitment. So it translates from really just not a a conviction to reduce new infections, but also a translation of that into into really the investment, the right sorts of budgets, um, the right type of programming. So that's one level. I think also on the programmatic front, for HIV prevention, we are looking at what we call a combination of prevention interventions, including issues, for example, like male circumcision, issues of, you know, educating young people, the access to condoms that can be used consistently. You know, we are looking at new research that points to issues 
for example, where are we on microbicides? Um, what are some of the biomedical things? We also know that some of the fundamental structural determinants of HIV, whether it's gender inequality, gender-based violence, poverty, continue to drive the epidemic. And so really, that's another thing that we're saying, okay, so how can we really fast-track these? We talk about a fast-tracking of prevention in the region. Now, Dr. Chulita, I know that your organization promotes comprehensive sexuality education as a prevention tactic. Now, if you could just take us through the results that you are witnessing. Well, comprehensive sexuality education is something that as a region we've really try to ensure that people understand what it means and, you know, that our leaders actually see it as not only just an intervention for HIV prevention, but also an intervention that really ensures that young people have the knowledge, the skills, and really the wherewithal to make the right sorts of decisions as they move forward, you know, in their life cycle. And so it's something that we've really looked at the curricula, we've tried to strengthen it, we've looked at issues of life skills, understanding what it means to go through adolescence, how you can be strengthened, and then really addressing things about, you know, protection and prevention of HIV, what you need to do. A lot of the research even going into promoting this as really one of the potential areas that, you know, really helps with HIV prevention, because I think many times you find parents and sometimes policy leaders say that by encouraging comprehensive sexuality education in schools, it actually makes young people promiscuous. And that, in fact, the research and the literature is to the contrary. That is Dr. Julita Onabanjo. She is the UN Population Fund Regional Director for East and Southern Africa. And she was talking to Jane Matebula. As the world commemorates breastfeeding week, a South African non-governmental organization, Milk Matters, says the length of maternity leave should be extended to give breastfeeding women enough time to breastfeed newborn babies. Elizabeth Abril- Brearley from the organization says the current three-month maternity leave is insufficient as newborns require breast milk regularly as basic nutrition for their well-being. She says employers should also be educated about managing maternity employees. Brearley elaborates. The theme for this year is let's make it work. So it's all about empowering mothers who are going back to work and um, ensuring that they know their rights in terms of stressing or whether it be do they know that they're allowed certain by by law they're allowed actually two half an hour breaks in order to express when they're at work etc because I think a lot of mothers aren't aware of what their options are before they go back to work so a lot of mothers assume that they just have to stop that you know they have to give up breastfeeding which can be quite stressful for the mother and obviously we want the best for those babies how effective has this new law been ever since it was legalized, the PMTCT? So the latest guidelines are from 2013, so that's um, from April 2013 to a couple of years ago. Um, and obviously it's been informed by a lot of research that's been done all over the world, but mostly in, in Africa and South Africa. And um, what the new guidelines have shown is that if mothers who are HIV positive um, are on their antiretrovirals, and ideally they've been on their antiretrovirals for at least four months, 
um, by the time they deliver the baby, they should, if they've been taking their medication daily and staying healthy, etc., adhering to their medication, they, it's actually safe for those mothers to carry on breastfeeding. Um, we know the risk of transmission via the breast milk can be less than 1%. So um, those babies, you know, are really getting the best if they can get their mother's own milk. And if the mother can stay on medication, the risk of the transmission is really, really low. How has the public worldwide have been taking this thing seriously? I think it's going to take time, you know, it's, you know, the last 10 years, we've always told mothers if they're HIV positive, then we were advising them to formula feed. So now, you know, only recently, as you know, as I said, we've been informed by a lot of research and very good evidence-based research that has shown that it is safe for those mothers to breastfeed, but we need to educate. It's all about education and whether it's um, our doctors, nurses, and families, you know, they need to know what what the latest um, guidelines are all about and and actually how safe it is. So it's going to take years for all of this to be, um, you know, trickled down to the community. You know, like anything, it's it's change takes time. You know, change takes time to evolve, and and that's why we have to work really hard on on education and training, whether it be our mothers, to doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, etc. So, is it safe to say that you haven't reached the level that you wanted in terms of of spreading this news? No, I mean, I'm, I I think it's safe to say that absolutely. I think it's going to still take you know, a lot longer for us to carry on with our education and and training. You know, as I said, these things take time to evolve and and to trickle down as a community. So, yeah, it is going to take a while, um, so we can only do our best. One could say the importance of breastfeeding is now public knowledge. What new information regarding breastfeeding do you have? Well, there's always research being published and released giving the benefits of breastfeeding. So we know, I mean, I know the public is fully aware that breastfeeding doesn't just protect the baby from nasty infections and actually lifelong diseases that they could potentially get, such as even, even it, it's amazing they've shown that even if a baby has been breastfed, when he's older, he's got less chance of developing obesity and diabetes. But also for the mothers that breastfeed, we know that those mothers who breastfeed have got less risk of developing things such as osteoporosis, ovarian and certain um, breast cancers as well. So we're always being, you know, there's continuing research happening in terms of looking at the benefits of breast milk because there's still so much, you know, about breastfeeding and breast milk that we don't know about. Let's talk about corporate mothers, the mothers that are working and are having have to balance their working and breastfeeding. What do you make of this? Yeah, it's hard. I can, it's really hard. You know, going back to work for a mother is daunting. You know, it's emotional having to leave the baby at home. It can be stressful. And it is really, really difficult. And, you know, maternity leave is only, it's four months. So, you know, it's not, it's not long enough. And yet we're saying that mothers should be exclusively breastfeeding their babies until they're six months of age. So, you know, the first thing we obviously need to look at is, is lengthening um, maternity leave for mothers. But also I think we need to educate mothers and um, educate employers as well. So big corporates or little businesses, so that they know what... Um, what the rights are of a breastfeeding mum. And if a mother is informed and she's empowered before she goes back to work, then and, and she knows what her rights are and what the options are for her going back to work, I think it can make it a lot easier. So I normally say to a mother, if she's going back to work, 
ideally a month before she goes back to work, you know, she wants to start thinking about it and getting her mind around it, whether that be she starts to express her milk and storing her milk in the freezer, maybe speaking to her boss and her colleagues and letting them know that she is coming back, but, you know, she may need um, time to express during the day and maybe a ideally a secure little room where she can sit and express where she's not exposed and, and, you know, she's not in a dirty space like some mothers, you know, have had to express in toilet spaces, which just isn't, you know, isn't right. That was Elizabeth Priely, Director for Milk Matters, a South African non-governmental organization, on the line to Vusi Ngosi. Brand South Africa has called on all South Africans to play their part for the development and empowerment of women during August, annually marked as Women's Month in the country. On the night of this month, the South Africans will commemorate the historic march in 1956, which became a turning point in the role of women in the struggle for freedom and society at large. The 1956 march will always be a key milestone in South Africa's road to freedom. To Dongobeni reports. Brand South Africa has called on all South Africans to play their part in the development and empowerment of women this month. The body that markets South Africa's image internationally says empowered, inspired and developed women are critical to the country's global competitiveness. This year's Women's Month celebrations will be centered on women achievers and their participation in the economy under the theme Women United in Moving South Africa Forward. Women's Month also has the overall objective of highlighting issues affecting women and the necessary actions that has and must be taken to change the social and economic environment for women in the country. Spokesperson at Brand South Africa, Manusha Pillay, explains. It's important because as the now AU Commission chairperson used to say when she was still in South Africa, no nation can develop to its fullest potential if at least 50% of its citizens remain underutilized, marginalized and underdeveloped. In South Africa, women are more than 50% of our population, so that just goes to show that we will never achieve our fullest potential as a country if our women do not become part of the programs of our country. And in that way, we have to make sure that they have the skills and resources to participate equitably. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1938 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The Science Cafe Stellenbosch will be celebrating National Science Week with a talk on the most exotic stars in the known universe, that is neutron stars. Dr. Jacobus Diener, a postdoctoral fellow at National Institute for Theoretical Physics at the University of Stellenbosch in the Western Cape Province, South Africa, says neutron stars are remnants of massive stars that exploded. The ones I'm specifically working on are called neutron stars. Yes, I'm talking about them, the the neutron stars. So neutron stars are formed when it it has to be a giant parent star, a progenitor as it's called, and when it depletes its fuel at the center of the star, then 
as it runs out of fuel, it's essentially the ash that stays behind in the core of the star. And as gravity still is compressing or pushing all this gas together, what happens is since you've got this ash at the center, the star essentially explodes. It implodes on itself. And out of the remnant of these stars and the ash, then you form a new type of star, and that's called a neutron star. So it's a much smaller star, but it weighs the same as that of our sun, about one and a half times that of our sun. So it's extremely small, about 10 kilometer radius, but extremely dense, since there's such big concentration of mass in the small volume. So in that sense, they are really exotic because it's kind of the end point of stellar evolution, and it's one of the densest known stable objects that we observe in the universe. And now, Doctor, talking about them as being the size of our sun, so how often are they being formed? It's difficult to say, but we do think it's fairly regular. We do see, because what happens is when the star explodes, the explosion itself is called a core collapse supernova, and we do see supernovae going off at, I mean, a couple of times per night even, though we observe them from Earth. It's very faint, but we do see them. But what exactly the birth rate is of the neutron star itself, because when the star explodes, it doesn't necessarily form this neutron star. But we do think that it does occur quite often, and there are quite a few of them. Okay, so maybe we should differentiate here. And every supernova that we see, every explosion we see, doesn't necessarily make a neutron star. But when we do observe them, we observe them as an object called a pulsar, which is emitting in the radio frequencies, and it's got this very distinct pulsating signal. So we pick up this pulses of radio waves, and there's, I think, about 1,500 of them known in our local galaxy. I think extragalactically, they are quite difficult to detect, but there should be many more in other galaxies as well, as far as I understand. So there's quite a few of them around. Stars seems to be dying all the time. Now, Doctor, if you could elaborate more for our listeners about this uh supernova as to what is it all about okay so that's when a star quite a big star reached the end of its life and essentially burns up all the fuel the gas that it's burning to keep itself stable because in a star you can think of a star as a balloon it's a quite simple model for it you have gravity pushing all the material together so that's the air pressure on the outside of the balloon but then you have to have some pressure on the inside of the star itself to keep it stable against gravitational collapse so to counteract the effect of gravity. And that usually happens by burning gas. Same way if you close the valve to a bicycle pump and you keep pumping, compressing the air together, it heats up. And the same way gravity compresses the gas that's floating around in space over time into a ball and then as it presses it even more together, it ignites and starts to burn. So that's a normal star. And uh, Doctor, why the description of these stars help a nuclear physicist to understand observations made by the square kilometer array. Uh-huh. Yes. If we look at neutron star pulsars, they can tell us something about nuclear matter because from the density that we infer, we should see inside the star. So as I said, it weighs about one and a half times that of our sun, so it's really massive, but it's a very small volume. The density is very similar to what we would see inside the nucleus of an atom. So essentially nuclear matter. The densities are very similar. So 
what we as nuclear physicists can do is we can use the same models or the way we think about nuclei and nuclear matter and apply that to study the material that we think are inside pulsars. So that's the correlation that we can draw. But the funny thing is the densities that we are seeing that they should be in these pulsars, in these stars, in these neutron stars out in space, we can't manufacture that in a lab on Earth because you just need too much energy to compress all this matter together. So and these neutron stars, these exotic stars, they represent a different test case that we can't experimentally look at on Earth. So it's really interesting for us to look at these stars because it's a different laboratory than that we have on Earth. And by inferring the characteristics, let's try and explain what we observe about these stars, we learn more about what we think should be inside the stars and thereby nuclear and nuclear matter. And uh, Doctor, talking about their weight, why do they have so much weight uh, as they are a residue of big stars? So the big stars, generally, they weigh about... They've got a mass about 25 times that of our sun. So if you explode them, you blow a lot of that out into the universe, into the interstellar medium. But the fraction that stays behind is about one and a half times. So it's about less than a 20th of the total mass that there was of the star that's left behind in this new star. But it's still a quite a significant amount since, I mean, our star, I haven't got the number but it is many, many millions of kilograms. So the weight is, or the mass is mostly a function of gravity because gravity always tends to bring masses together. So some of the mass of the, as the star explodes that it gets ejected, it's got enough momentum to escape the gravitational pull of the star, but gravity will, through time, get all the mass together and compress it again of this exploded star and thereby forming this new star called the neutron star from the ash, as I call it, of the parent star, the much more massive parent star. That was Dr. Jacobus Diener, postdoctoral fellow of the National Institute for Theoretical Physics at the University of Stellenbosch in the Western Cape province of South Africa. And he was talking to Wandi Le Kalipa. It's time for Economic News. Here's Usani Matabula. Thanks, Pumelele. Malawi authorities through the National Construction Industry Council, NCIC, has rolled out the first ever construction policy that is meant to foster economic growth and international competitiveness as opposed to the past. CEO of the NCIC, Linda Piri. The policy has provided for the development of the construction development fund. We have already rolled out uh, the process of putting in place what we have called the retention fund, which will uh, allow construction companies to transfer their retention money from their clients into this fund. And uh, this fund manager will create a sub-account for every contractor. That means 
there will be a lot of money put in that fund belonging, belonging to various uh, contractors. That will be security enough for that fund to be able to uh, at least give out resources to construction firms at a cheaper, uh, much cheaper rate than what is uh, being given in commercial banks. And South African bullion producer Harmony Gold says uh, has warned uh, that it will retrench up to 8,000 workers if trade union AMCU rejects its final wage offer of an additional 50 US dollars a month. The warning comes after the union said its members had mandated it not to shift from its 1,500 US dollars key demand for entry level employees. AMCU General Treasury Jimmy Gama. We're not going to be forced to accept something that uh, our members are not uh, happy about because of the fear that uh, there will be mine shutdowns. Uh, these are the things that they always say. Um, there are many factors that uh, causes the mine to be shutdowns, not only the uh, basic salary increases. So we came here, we expect the mines to respond to our mandate from the members not to threaten us about the, the shutting down of the mines. The authorities in Kenya say uh, Kenya's national carrier, Kenyan Airways, which has reported a record loss in its year that ended in March, requires $600 million US dollars bailout to save it from collapse. Board chairperson even Siwa Muniki. I personally would not like to see a situation where the government takes over Kenya Airways to become a parastito. We were there before and we didn't make money, but we made money after privatization. John Mbadi, a Kenyan opposition member of parliament, briefly explains why the national airline faced the situation that resulted in the huge loss. One or two Kenyans have been on a buying spree, snapping those uh, falling shares at a rate that betrays some kind of insider information, thus being indicative that there is advanced knowledge and the preparation for imminent collapse of the airline. The number of international tourists visiting South Africa decreased slightly from 2013 to 2014, with visitors from China decreasing the most by over 45%. Statistician General Padi Lehosha says they cannot give an explanation for the decrease. Lehosha says it's too early to determine what the impact of the new visa regulations on tourism will be. I think it's uh, something that uh, the policy departments will have to, to look at and say, what does this data tell us? Uh, in, in living memory of tracking tourism numbers, uh, we haven't seen such a, a sharp decline from any, any, any country. And finally to Angola, where the devaluation of the Angolan Kwanzaa by the central bank in June has not alleviated pressure on the national carrier, which reached an all-time low on mid-July, losing 18% since January. Like many oil-producing countries, Angola is struggling due to low oil prices. Economic growth is being hurt by liquidity and currency pressures, rising inflation and fiscal constraints. The high dependency of the country on hydrocarbons is increasing its vulnerability, with oil accounting for nearly 40% of its GDP. And that's the final one for the day.
Thank you very much, Usani. It's 19.51 Central African Time. It's time for Sports News. Here's Mosibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Zamale goalkeeper Ahmed Al-Swani has asked the Egyptian club to leave him out of their trip to Congo ahead of the CAF Confederation Cup against AC Leopards. Al-Swani was involved in a tackle that led to AC Leopards striker Rudy Ndea suffering a career-threatening injury in last week's Confederation Cup match. The neck injury to Ndea caused panic during the game, and the Congolese striker was subsequently rushed to the Air Defence Hospital where he has since been receiving treatment. On to local football news, Kaiser Chiefs head coach Steve Kombella boasts that he knows 80% of Maritzburg United ahead of the reunion with his former employers in the MTN8 tomorrow night. This week's quarterfinal will be Gombella's first competitive match in charge of Kaiser Chiefs, where he took over from Shrewd Baxter back in June. Gombella believes he has a valuable insight of his former club. A leopard never changes its spots. It can only change the tracks, but the spots will remain. So part to their DNA cannot be changed overnight. And we, we expect almost a team that we, we saw last season. There's obviously new inclusions. And also the coach, knowing how we work, we work together, he would obviously want to tweak one or two things. Mamelodi Sundowns face Bluefontein Celtic at the same time as Kaiser Chiefs faces Marisburg United. Sundowns have a number of injuries in their camp. Their top striker, Cathbert Malajila, will miss the game due to injury. Both sides won the competition when it was known as the SAA Super 8. Celtic won it back in 2005, while Sundowns won it two years later. Sundowns head coach Pito Mosimani says his team will be ready for Celtic. But I think we have won to them. We have won many games more than they, we lost to them. We lost one free game against them, and um, it's not about Bloom Celtic. It's about preparation for the season. It's about uh, trying to acquire the trophy. So yeah, we will see. Well, the competition has officially kicked off with Bedvets Vets leading Supersport United by a goal to nil, while Orlando Pirates, as well as Ajax Cape Town, are currently goalers at Orlando Stadium. On to rugby news, Golden, Lock, um, Golden Lions lock Franco Mozarte and Puma's scrum half Fav Ditlak have been released from the Springbok camp and will be available for the provinces in the APSA Curry Cup. In addition, Connie Oistazen, who has not been an official member of the squad, will continue with his rehabilitation away from the camp. Springbok team doctor Greg Roberts confirmed that Jean uh, de Villiers, Fouri Dupree, Jan Stierfontein, Peter Spieth de Tour, Stephen Kleshoff, as well as Willem Alberts should all be available for selection this week ahead of the Springbok's last Castle Lager Rugby Championship encounter against Argentina in Durban on Saturday. Today. 
Now to Cricket News, Del Steyn and A.B. de Villiers have been recalled to South Africa's one-day international side for the visit of, or for the visit of New Zealand later this month. Young um, wicketkeeper Quentin de Kock has been axed for after a poor run of form in Bangladesh. New Zealand will play three ODI matches against the Proteas between the 19th and the 26th of August. The two sides will then face off in two T20 internationals. Steyn, as well as fellow Seema Vernon Philander, returned to one day international duty after missing the series in Bangladesh. De Villiers will also be back from paternity leave to skip other side, but the Proteus will be without all-rounder JP Dumini and fast bowler Mone Mokel for the 50-over series as they both will await the birth of their children. Meanwhile, the Proteus selectors have run out of patience with wicketkeeper Quentin de Kock um, after his poor form of late, according to coach Russell Domingo. De Kock, like any other cricketer, has been going through a rough patch and has to work on some technical aspects of his batting. Times away from the pressures of international cricket can be beneficial, particularly for a young player like Quentin. Um, we're hoping that he can regain that confidence, work on one or two technical aspects, I suppose, and, and come back to the South African squad when that is, we're not sure, but uh, in a good space and, and putting in the performances that we know he's capable of performing. The Zari Sports News at the South, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's look at parts of stories on Africa Digest this hour. Leading Burundian human rights defender shot and injured in Bujumbura. A new South African liquor policy could make retailers liable for accidents and crimes committed by drunk customers. In economics, Kenya Airways reports a record loss in its year ending March. And in sport, Andy Murray back on hard courts at the City Open. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, it's Pumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Dumelo Mugwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us tweets on Channel Africa One. It's Channel Africa One on Twitter, on SMS, or on plus 27796 957 That is plus 27796 957 Here's Brian Temba with Zanele. Bye-bye. Two, three.